Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Liquidware, the creators of Profile Unity, FlexApp, and Stratosphere UX, the premier UEM app layering and visibility solutions, and also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also brought to you by Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. There is a big announcement from AWS this week. Through Mac Mini hardware and the AWS Nitro system, AWS is enabling us all to now use Amazon EC2 Mac instances to build, test, package, and sign Xcode applications for the Apple platforms, including macOS, iOS, iPadOS, tvOS, watchOS, and Safari. The instances are said to feature an eighth generation six core Intel Core i7 Coffee Lake processor running at 3.2 gigahertz with turbo boost up to 4.6 gigahertz. There's 32 gig of memory and access to other AWS services that include Amazon Elastic Block Store, Amazon FSX for Windows File Server, Amazon Simple Storage Service, AWS Systems Manager, and more. On the networking side, the instances run in a virtual private cloud and include ENA networking with up to 10 gigabits per second of throughput with EBS optimization and the ability to deliver up to 55,000 IOPS and 8 gigabits per second of throughput for data transfer. EBS volumes attached to the instances can deliver the performance needed to support IO intensive build operations. Interestingly, Mac instances run macOS 10.14, which is Mojave, and 10.15, which is Catalina, but not yet Big Sur, at least according to this publication. The instances can be accessed via command line SSH or remote desktop with VNC. As of right now, the Mac minis they are relying on for hosting the service are not running the new M1 chips. They have stated getting the M1 chips rolled out is already underway and is planned for 2021. For those already familiar with AWS, they say they plan to make new AMIs available each time Apple releases major or minor versions of each supported operating system. They also plan to produce AMIs with updated Amazon packages every quarter, which is interesting again because Big Sur has been released for a few weeks now, but at least according to this statement or announcement it is not yet being run dedicated hosts instances are launched as ec2 dedicated hosts with a minimum tenancy of 24 hours they say it's largely transparent to you but it does mean that the instances cannot be used as part of an auto scaling group so you can run mac instances on demand or purchase via a savings plan. And honestly, if you look at the pricing, it is very expensive. So it'll be interesting to see 
what customers they attract with this new service. It is pretty cool though. Sticking with AWS for this next one, the Amazon Workspaces Streaming Protocol, or WSP, is now generally available. WSP is a cloud-native streaming protocol that enables a consistent user experience when accessing your workspaces across global instances and unreliable networks. They say WSP also enables additional features such as common access card and personal identity verification smart card support and video camera support. On Windows clients, smart card support enables access to protected applications from within a workspace instance or for authenticating into a workspace instance. Currently in beta, they say they've got video camera support, enables Mac and Windows OS clients to use their video conferencing application of choice from within the workspaces. So obviously, right now, workspaces is a hot topic across all of the cloud platforms. This is AWS's effort. Obviously, there's Azure and some third-party workspaces like Citrix Workspace that's running on Azure. You've got Google with their workspaces that was really just a rebrand of their existing suite of products that they've now called workspaces. But things are hotting up, so this is a pretty interesting development, and I'm sure there will be more down the line. To follow up on a story from last week's episode, it has now been confirmed by Salesforce that they are acquiring Slack for $27 billion. I speculated about integration of Slack into the Salesforce platform last week, and of course, they have now confirmed they plan to incorporate Slack's communication software into every aspect of their cloud software offerings. Shareholders are said to get $26.79 in cash and 0.0776 shares of Salesforce stock in exchange for each share of Slack. That return for the shareholders is pretty good considering the stock was below that amount at the beginning of November, ramping up recently for obvious reasons, not throwing out accusations or anything. <coughs> but congrats to Slack. It's great to see a startup sell for such a large amount, particularly one that created a product that so many loved. Personally, I don't like Slack very much because it's very noisy, just constant, constant messages coming in there. It's very hard to decipher, you know, what's important and what's not. Um, but I'm in the minority on that one. So congratulations to Slack and everyone who works there and everyone who held stock. In another follow-up story to a story I covered last week, on last week's episode, I covered a BBC report on a ransomware attack on Manchester United Football Club. By their own accounts, it seemed like they had things pretty well under control. Well now, multiple other British publications have reported this week that systems have still not been recovered and that some of the information taken include sensitive player scouting notes. They also report that they may end up paying the ransom. At this time, they have not divulged information on how the breach occurred or have given any specifics on what was taken. The club still seems to be pretty protective over what has happened, and I'm sure more information will become available in the coming weeks or months. But I figured I should do a bit of a correction. I mean, the BBC report was just using the club's own statements, which that's coming from the source. But now there's multiple other sources who are somewhat contradicting that. But again, the club has not confirmed nor denied at this point. 
The Register had a story on a doozy of a data breach this week. A member of the InfoSec community contacted them anonymously with information to use a custom search product and put in a specific query to get back a lot of data from a Cayman Islands investment fund. It turns out the fund's customers' data was showing who was a customer and how much they put into the fund, and it was all stored on servers that were backing up to an Azure blob storage. This was not malicious, it was just an oversight. It was backing up to the Azure blob storage and was publicly exposed on the internet and this person found it via this custom search engine. But it should be a lesson to us all. Rule one of the cloud, if you don't take a bottom up approach to configuring, anything you create or add in Azure or AWS is not secure by default. You need to build out your network and security first to ensure your stuff is not exposed on the public internet. This was not done in this case and the customer information was exposed. The register contacted the fund who initially thought it was a phishing attempt, but one of their tech guys realized that the register was actually trying to help them and inform them of their mistake. So hopefully that's all been cleared up now. A little funny note, the Register's article says that the person who tipped them off used the quote, money, money, money is so funny in a rich man's world, along with data showing like driver's license information, passport information, and how much these wealthy people have sitting in this fund. Potentially a bad day for them. ZDNet reported this week that a new version of TrickBot, which has been used to infiltrate corporate systems and has been sold to ransomware gangs for launching their own attacks, has a worrying new feature. It has been found that there is code in the latest version that is doing a BIOS and UEFI check. Right now the code is doing some checks and is not modifying anything, but experts believe this could be the start of something bigger. Potentially, it could be a means for them to stay on systems even after tech teams think they have cleared any threat, and then if the organization refuses to pay the ransom, they can brick their machines from boot time using BIOS or UEFI. From memory, I believe I covered a story similar to this a few months ago, so it seems this is becoming an increasing surface for attack, which is not good. There have been reports for a few weeks now that state actors have been potentially targeting manufacturers of the COVID-19 vaccine. This week, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security issued a warning. The New York Times reports that there have been attempts to steal the network login credentials of corporate executives and officials at global organizations involved in the refrigeration process necessary to protect vaccine doses. They believe that the attacks were sophisticated enough that they pointed to a government-sponsored initiative, not a rogue criminal operation aimed purely at monetary gain. But they could not identify which country might be behind them. They said whoever it is seems to want to figure out the cold chain process necessary for successfully transporting and storing the vaccines. Now the report goes on to speculate that it's unlikely that the attacks are coming from China, and it's more likely to stem from North Korea or Russia. It also speculates that the long-term play may be a ransomware attack when distribution of the vaccine is underway. Honestly, the only real takeaways from the report is that the Department of Homeland Security in the United States have issued a warning, attacks are targeting executives' login credentials, and specifically around the freezing or refrigeration process of the vaccine. 
all the rest about a potential ransomware attack and all of that and which country it's coming from is just speculation on the part of New York Times and their sources. Fish Labs recently posted an interesting article on the topic of paying ransoms. So as I have stated on multiple episodes, the advice is to never pay a ransom as it highlights that you are willing to pay. So it could just encourage further attacks on you. As covered on a previous episode, there have also been cases this year in which the ransom was paid and the attackers vowed to delete the stolen data, but did not make good on that promise. This report suggests cyber gangs have been sharing the stolen data amongst various different cyber gang groups. Increasingly, it appears the gangs involved in such attacks cannot be trusted, which is not exactly a huge surprise, but it serves as further incentive and reason to not pay any ransom. So if you ever find yourself in that position, don't pay the ransom because what they're saying they're going to do may not actually hold water. Leapingcomputer.com reported this week that Microsoft is working on a Windows subsystem for Android, similar to the very popular Windows subsystem for Linux. For anyone who has been using the Your Phone app on Windows 10, you can already launch Android apps on Windows 10 through streaming, but the subsystem should offer a more seamless experience. Very interestingly, it said in the report that MSIX packages could be used for packaging and delivering these Android apps. It also stated this would require little or no change by the app developers. So it'll be interesting to see how this story develops. On the topic of MSIX, Microsoft recently posted a blog on how to batch convert apps from AppV to MSIX. The ability to convert AppV to MSIX has been available for some time. For a long time, it was just not documented at all. Now you can dive in and convert in bulk your AppV apps to MSIX, and it's all documented. I'll share that how-to guide with this episode, which is episode 153, and you'll find it on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links, or typically in the description field for this episode on your podcast platform of choice. On the topic of AppV a little bit, if you've been working around an issue with AppV sequenced versions of Google Chrome or Microsoft Edge, by disabling the font subsystem, there's some good news. Dan Gough tweeted that a fix is in the works and he confirmed that with Microsoft. So hopefully there's gonna be a reasonable fix on the horizon that allows you to keep the font subsystem enabled if that's something you wanna do. I know some have suggested just overall globally just to disable that font subsystem because it causes other problems too. But you know, maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you're relying on that. And if you are, you should be able to keep it in future because there should be a fix. Beyond Trust have published their annual Microsoft Vulnerability Report, which looks at Microsoft's vulnerability publications for the year and analyzes trends. Some of the trends for this year include that in 2019, a record high number of 858 Microsoft vulnerabilities were discovered. The number of reported vulnerabilities has risen 64% in the last five years. It stated that removing admin rights would mitigate about 77% of all critical Microsoft vulnerabilities from 2019. 100% of critical vulnerabilities in Internet Explorer and Edge would have been mitigated by removing admin rights. Now, I assume this is the old Edge, not the new Edge, because it's based on the previous year. 
And also 80% of critical vulnerabilities affecting Windows 7, 8.1, and Windows 10 would have been mitigated by removing of admin rights. So <laughs> pretty clear from those bullet points, you need to get rid of admin rights. It's probably a good idea to leverage something like a zero trust solution by someone like Beyond Trust or Indeed, my very good sponsor, Policy Pack Software, have their least privilege manager. That would be a good option. But for more information from the report, I suggest you get the full report. It's pretty awesome. Workplace Ninjas are holding a virtual 2021 event and have a call out for speakers. I'm kind of contemplating that I might try to submit for it, but I'm edging towards foregoing it to give others more of a chance to speak. I had a good, geez, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten year run. I'm not sure how long of a run, but I was speaking at at least three or four conferences a year and doing webinars and all that. I feel like it's a good time to step back and let other people have that opportunity. So if you've never tried public speaking, this is a really great opportunity. So if you'd like to speak, I'll share a link that you can use to submit a session idea. And if you get approved, you'll get to speak at their 2021 event. And I encourage you to do it, especially when it's virtual. It's a really good way to ease yourself into public speaking. It's a lot less nerve wracking when you're just sitting in front of a computer and potentially just reading it off your screen while showing off on another screen. Microsoft's Power Toys version 0.27.0 has been released. I'm excited to try this one out for the Fancy Zones feature, which provides a multi-monitor editor experience that's now drastically improved for discoverability. It fixes zones being forgotten on reboot, and they've added in the ability to have no layout. So this is a pretty interesting one if you've got like one of those um, ultra widescreen monitors and you wanna be able to have multiple different sections and split it up like it's two or three monitors. So you should definitely check that out if you work on an ultra wide single monitor. That's it for the news this week. I have a whole lot of scripts, tricks, and tips now. So I talked a little bit about MSIX earlier. On the topic of MSIX, you need code signing certificates to sign all of your packages. And it's a real pain in the butt for packagers to try and get to grips with doing that. Plus, code signing certificates are actually really expensive. So if you're looking at one of the um, top companies or more trusted companies like Entrust, um, DigiCert, you're looking at potentially over $500 a year for a code signing cert. Well, this week I saw that Helga Klein shared a resource for relatively cheap certs. It's ksoftware.net and they're selling for about $70 a year for three years. I believe is a Komodo.net, what's the Microsoft one? But there's a Microsoft one and I think they're selling for about $70 a year as well. But since this is potentially the future of packaging, you're probably gonna wanna get a code signing cert if you wanna try it out. Uh, I've been generating my own code signing cert using PowerShell, but it's not appropriate for an enterprise organization to be doing that it's better to use an actual valid code signing cert for the enterprise. This week, Thomas Dashin recommended checking out ViewDNS, and it lets you pretty much do every kind of IP and DNS lookup imaginable, including checking to see if a domain is available for access in Iran and China through their infamous firewalls. 
This together with Qualysys are really great resources for anyone using hosting services. You could check the ciphers and make sure that your site is as secure as it possibly could be. And then maybe go back to your host if you find vulnerabilities or issues or holes and say, hey, can you fix this? I'm showing this in my report. And then with DNS, you could do things like see what other sites are on your shared hosting plan, like what domains are on the same servers. You can look at your IP history and more. It's pretty interesting stuff. There's a free ebook by author Xavier Avriller on the topic of Power CLI for automation purposes. In the book, Xavier presents a use case approach to learning how to automate tasks in vSphere environments using PowerCLI. He starts by covering the basics of installation, setup, and an overview of PowerCLI terms, and from there moves into scripting logic and script building with step-by-step instructions of some truly useful custom scripts, including how to retrieve data on vSphere objects, display VM performance metrics, how to build HTML reports and schedule them, basics on building functions, and more. Another week and some more tweets from Torsten, who, by the way, you should follow on Twitter. His handle is ENDI24. So like Guy Leach, he's constantly tweeting out these handy commandlets, scripts, and tips. It makes me feel like I should be doing more of that and tweeting these things out. Um, But it's a really great resource for me on this podcast. And since this is all community contributions, I hope it's a useful resource for you too. But this week, Thorsten tweeted out the get GPP password PowerShell script by PowerShell Mafia, which searches a domain controller for groups.xml, scheduletask.xml, services.xml, and datasources.xml files and returns any plain text passwords it finds. He also shared a really handy one-liner PowerShell commandlet for listing out your more recent group policy objects that have been modified. And that one should be pretty popular. It's going to be useful to everyone. My buddy in Australia, Aaron Parker, also had a pretty busy week sharing a lot of his work. He's been covering the topic of image customizations and optimizations for years. He is an authority on the subject. You can check out his various PowerShell scripts that include several on image customization. And some of the key scripts include the ability to remove default universal Windows platform apps, running in block list or allow list mode, uh, removing additional universal Windows platform apps on virtual machines, scripts on configuring the default user profile, which are really handy, Um, a script on setting additional default profile optimizations for virtual machines, a script on enabling Microsoft Defender settings, and a script on configuring machine-level settings. These are just some of the key scripts. There are more scripts available there, too. And he's got some other repos on his GitHub for other topics, too, including he's got some on Intune scripts for regional settings on machines and checking plus resolving issues related to that using Intune. So check out Aaron's really great work. And Guy Leach shared a pretty handy one-liner in PowerShell to get a username and SID of a user running the current PowerShell script rather than by spoofable environment variables. So this is something that comes in handy too when you're trying to maybe like reverse query some of the user registry tied to the SID. I've had to do it as well for like groups for app V purposes to get the group SID. So this is a handy one to have in your back pocket. And speaking of Guy, his E2EVC session on writing robust PowerShell code has also been published on YouTube. So check that out. 
And finally, I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing community legend and Citrix CTP fellowship holder, Steve Greenberg, on the Frontline Chatter podcast with another community legend, Jarian Gibson. Steve was the first person I went to for advice when starting this podcast. He also graciously offered to bring me to his kick-ass studio to show me the ropes. Due to having young kids in no time, I didn't get to take him up on that, but I appreciated the offer. He's always been very helpful and supportive to me. In this interview, we cover a wide range of topics, including getting some of his thoughts on changes throughout end-user computing and some of the latest trends. It's also somewhat of a lost episode, unfortunately. We recorded it and intended for it to come out around the time of the EUC Masters Retreat event, which is one of the best tech conferences in the world that Steve founded. But due to COVID, the event was not to be in 2020, and the episode got delayed a little bit. Well, not a little bit, a lot. But check out this episode, and word of note, there's going to be an upcoming episode of the podcast where Jarian and I interview another legend, Tobias Creedle. Tobias is awesome too, and Steve and Tobias's episodes somewhat complement each other because Steve is talking a little bit about, about his history and also trends in the industry. But then Tobias, from his career, goes way back and he talks about all the changes in the industry and the different technologies he's worked on throughout the entire career that he had, an amazing career. So that's a really great episode too. So check out the Frontline Chatter podcast for excellent interviews. It's definitely one of the best tech-based interview podcasts out there. Well, that's it for another episode. I'd like to thank you all so much for listening.